Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing this short series on wisdom with James Jordan, and here Jordan's going to be lecturing on the topic of wisdom and death. A lot of these themes were covered in last week's episode, but we think you'll find his additional comments here very helpful. We do want to invite you to our inaugural Theopolitan Ministry Conference, which will be here in Birmingham, Alabama on July 19th and 20th. This conference is the continuation of the old Biblical Horizons conferences. And at this first conference, Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, and our Theopolis Fellows will be lecturing on a wide range of topics, all in the context of liturgical worship and psalm singing. So for more information and for registration, there's a link in the show notes, and we look forward to seeing many of you there. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan lecturing on wisdom and death. We were looking at wisdom and rule, and we took as our theme the phrase, By me kings reign, which is what wisdom says in Proverbs chapter 8. We didn't quite finish what we were looking at there, but tonight what we're going to consider when we get to it is wisdom and death. The fact that wisdom is the knowledge of good and evil, and that to come to the knowledge of good and evil has something to do with death. And so that's where we're going to go, and I want to let you know that to start with. But let me remind you that when God made the earth, he made three general areas in the earth. He made the world, he made the land of Eden, and within the land of Eden, he made the Garden of Eden on the east side. This is the sanctuary area. This is where God would meet with Adam and Eve, And this is where there was a food law, a sacrament, a tree of life, and also a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which would impart some special spiritual gift to Adam and Eve. And although we're not going to be able to trace this through this morning, the matter of fact is, you had a little taste of both. You had bread, which is alpha food, and which what you eat in the morning when you have toast or cereal, that's bread. And you had some omega food, which is wine, which is what you drink at night to help you go to sleep. Usually, I don't think you start off the day with a glass of wine, do you? Maybe some of you do, and you need to see the elders, okay? But no, wine is for kings, bread is for priests. Wine has to do with ruling and knowledge of good and evil. It's wisdom stuff. It takes a lot of wisdom to make wine. Try it. When you make wine, you'll make vinegar. It takes wisdom to make wine. Bread, much simpler. And you can trace this through the Bible and you'll find these things are associated with it. Now, I'm not saying there was a donut tree and a Chateau Neuf de Pot tree in the garden, but these things continue through and expand and develop until what we have now gives us the kingship of Jesus in the wine and the priesthood of Jesus and his sacrifice in the broken bread. Now, if we were to move this forward in history a little bit, we would find in Israel we have the tabernacle, which is God's throne. And in the tabernacle, we have a tree of light, and we have a table with bread on it. We have an altar of incense. We have the throne of God and the Holy of Holies. Out here we have an altar where food is cooked by priests. And this whole area here is a new form of the garden. Outside this area are the tribes 
And that's the kingly field area. But first of all, you have to be a priest. Priests are under law. We talked about how Adam and Eve were under law because they were children. You kids don't get to make your own decisions. Your folks come to you and say, what would you like for dinner, honey? No. They make a plate. They put broccoli on it, Brussels sprouts, potatoes, meat, and they say, eat or die. Eat or you will eat this, okay? You're under law. They say take out the garbage or you're under law. That's how you learn. For a while, you're under law. Then you're old enough to start making your own decisions. We talked about that this morning. Well, now we have to see how that's in a big way in the Bible because priests are under law. If you read the book of Leviticus, which I know you all do about once a week, you'll see that there's no wisdom in that book. It's all rules. And it's so simple and easy. If you're a priest, you just have this rule book here. So some layman comes and he brings a sheep. He wants to have a sheep. Okay, let's see. Is this sheep pure white? Or does it have some spots on it? Is it blemished? Okay. It's all written down here. Okay, now you've got to inspect the man who's going to come to dinner. You got any white spots on your body? No. Okay. Do you have any other forms of uncleanness? Have you been around an animal carcass? No. There are other embarrassing questions that could be asked, which we will draw the veil over tonight, but which you can read about in Leviticus 15. I know we'll all go home and read it right away. It's so simple. And then when it's time to do the sacrifice, this is easy. You say, okay, Mr. Layman, I like to say, you lean on this animal. He puts his hand on the animal. No, sir, I want you to lean on it. I want you to lean on that animal. Just kind of put yourself into the animal so that where he goes, you go. Now, you kill the animal. Do I have to? Yeah, you have to. Would you do it for me? No, you have to kill the animal yourself. You have to kill yourself. Confess your sins. Show me how. Okay, this is how you do it. Now, I'll catch the blood. Now, sir, please don't go over to the altar. Stay away from the altar. I'll take care of putting the blood at the altar. Sir, don't go near that tabernacle door over there. You see those Levites with those spears? Uh-uh, you don't want to go in that tabernacle. You're not allowed in there. You stay over here, sir. Now, the whole ritual here is all laid out. There's no wisdom involved. There's nothing the priest has to decide except to look in the rule book and apply the rule. And God gives law to Israel at this time in history at Mount Sinai. 400 years later, God gives them kings, and then we get wisdom literature. What are the four wisdom books? Proverbs? No, not Psalms. Ecclesiastes? Job and Song of Solomon. Those are the four books about how to be a king. Four king books. Job is the king of the land of Edom. Song of Solomon is about the king as the husband of the people. This is all over the Old Testament. All right? These are king books. And wisdom is not a matter of opening up the book and knowing what to do. What is the first big picture of wisdom that we have after Solomon asked for wisdom What's the next story we read? Anybody remember? The story of the two harlots. And one baby died, and the other lady stole her friend's baby. Now, Solomon probably said, 
Let me consult Deuteronomy and see what it says about how to deal with this. There wasn't anything in there. It required wisdom to deal with that. It wasn't written down. Now, you don't get wisdom unless you live under law for a while and internalize the rules. Then you grow up and you have your senses exercised to discern good and evil. And you're no longer on milk, but you're ready for meat and all the other things we looked at. And so in the same, just as Adam and Eve start out in this sanctuary garden where the sacramental trees are, but they're going to move out into the field, into the world, so Israel starts off with law centered in on the sanctuary. 400 years later, they come to the kingdom, which is out in the wider world. Wisdom has to do with that. This morning we were looking at the fact that knowledge of good and evil is wisdom. It's pronouncing judgment. You can't pronounce judgments until you have some experience with life. And we were looking this morning at the fact that God uses animals to teach us about life when we're children. Like Peter Rabbit. Don't go stealing vegetables from Farmer McGregor. Basic rule of life. The tortoise and the hare. Aesop's fables. All the animal fables in the Bible. Animal sacrifices. Adam learning from the animals that he needs a wife. When we get to the New Testament, how much animal stuff is in there? Not much. Paul ever give us any animal stories in the epistles? No. It's all moved to the human realm. Everything is about people with people. But when we were children, as Galatians says, we were under tutors and governors which are the angels. And the angels taught us using animals and stars. Repeat that. Angels taught us using animals and stars. Angels taught us using animals and stars. Y'all are afraid to say that, but it's true. Throughout the Old Testament, the angels who give the law and who are in charge of the human race are using animals and they're using the movement of the stars to teach us when to worship. How do you know when to worship? You observe the vernal equinox, you look for the first new moon, that tells you the first day of the first month. You count to the full moon and that's Passover. When it's light outside and you can go outside at night. You count the months, you look at the vernal equinox. How do you know when the day starts? It's when the sun goes down. You sacrifice between the evenings after the sun sets and before it gets dark. That's all in the sky. We're being trained as children. Animals are teaching us. And so, God brings these animals to Adam and he learns that he needs a wife. Then God brings another animal and what animal does he bring? He brings the absolute wisest animal there is. The serpent. Jesus says, be wise as a serpent. If there was any wiser animal, Jesus would have said, be wise as that. Look, if trilobites were wiser than serpents, Jesus would have said, be wise as a trilobite. If tigers were wiser than serpents, he would have said, be wise as a tiger. He wants us to be super wise. The serpent is as wise as it gets, and it says so right there in Genesis 3, verse 1. The serpent was the wisest animal from out here, and he is brought in to the garden to teach wisdom to Adam and Eve so that they can have their senses exercised to discern good and evil and be ready for strong meat 
so they can go out of the garden into the world and rule it as king. Right now they're children, but they need to grow up and become king. Then they'll be ready for the wisdom literature, which is for kings, like you and me. We're in Christ. He's the king. We're in the king. That makes us kings, right? Are you a king? The answer is yes. Are you a king? Do I have a wave offering? Okay, I don't have one, but you are all kings. So all this kingdom literature is for you to teach you wisdom. And the serpent is the one who's supposed to do it. And angels use animals to teach people. Now, who was the chief angel? Lucifer. And so Lucifer is the chief instructor and tutor of the human race. So, he gets on the back of this serpent, which is the wisest animal, and he comes into the garden to teach Adam and Eve to make them wise. That's his job. He's chief angel. He's the chief teacher. He's the principal of the school. He's the best teacher. He's the archangel. Unfortunately, he has his own plan. At some point, and probably right during this conversation, a fellow named Jeffrey John Myers has suggested that it was right during this conversation, and this makes a great deal of sense to me, that Satan decided he didn't want to go along with this program. He didn't want Adam and Eve to become kings and queens. He wanted to destroy God's plan. Because when Adam and Eve become kings and queens, will they be under the angels anymore? How about you? Are you under the angels? Uh-uh, uh-uh, no. First Corinthians says we judge angels. Jesus is over the angels, right? Are you in Christ? Are you over the angels? Jesus was under the law. He was under the angels. Now he's over the angels. That was the plan. Now, if you were ever in the military, you know all about this, you see. You're a cadet. You're going to be an officer. But right now you're in college in ROTC. So you go off to summer camp, and there's a sergeant in charge of you. We've all seen these movies about how sergeants treat recruits and cadets, you know. Are you from Mississippi? Whatever it is, they're out to give you a hard time. They make you get up at four in the morning and clean the bathroom with the toothbrush in your mouth and all the other things that sergeants make you do. And after a while, when you can run ten miles without falling down, and you know exactly how to break your weapon down with your eyes blindfolded and put it back together again in 90 seconds, and you know the muzzle velocity of every weapon that was ever invented since time began, you graduate. And on the day of graduation, they pin a lieutenant's bar on you. Up till this time, for the last four months, every time the sergeant walks down this hall, you have to say, good morning, sergeant. But today, on this day of graduation, as you walk on the way out, the sergeant stands there and he salutes you. And he's very proud to see you as a now lieutenant ready to go out and get beat up by other sergeants who refuse to cooperate with you and take orders from you. Now, you see, that's exactly the situation here. The good angels rejoice to see us grow up and become mature and be over the angels. That means they don't have to run the world anymore. They can give it all up and relax, smoke cigars, take it easy, and human beings are now in charge of things. 
sounds good to the good angels. They're looking forward to it. Now Jesus rules the world, and they don't have to. But the bad angels, they didn't want that to happen. They wanted to keep the world for themselves. That's what's happening here, and that's what happens in Genesis 3. Now, we're just going to get a little bit of wisdom real fast here in Genesis 3. Quickly, get this out before we go further. Genesis 3 begins, of course, at the end of chapter 2. You know the basic rule. Never start reading the Bible at the beginning of a chapter. And never stop reading at the end of a chapter. Because the chapters are fake. Always look at what starts from the previous chapter, because it might be relevant. And always look at what continues on in the next chapter, because it's likely to be relevant. Here it is. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the beginning, and the end of the paragraph is, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves girdles. That's where it begins, that's where it ends. Unfortunately, the chapter break has messed it up. Chapter 2, verse 25 should be the first part of chapter 3. So they're both here together. Now the serpent was wiser, more prudent than any beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. Sounds like a good guy. And he is a good guy. This is good serpent. And he said to the woman, and he's coming in from the field to give us field instruction so that we'll grow up and be ready to move out and take dominion. We all on this page? This is what's happening here. And he says to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Break that up. Eve? That's your name, right? Eve? No, it's not. We haven't gotten her name yet. He's not called that till later. Okay, woman? Hey, woman. Was it God who said that? Well, that's a tough question. Because did Eve hear God give this command? No. She hadn't been made yet when God gave this command. So how did she learn about it? A little bird told her, right? How did Eve learn about the commands about the tree? Adam told her, right. He's the pastor. He speaks first. He teaches her. But now... She has to decide. Adam said that this came from God. I didn't hear it come from God. Do I trust Adam or not? Ah, when you start to explore why you think what you think, you're starting to move into wisdom instruction. You see, as long as I just tell you 2 plus 2 is 4, 2 plus 4 is 6, 2 plus 6 is 8, and you memorize it, that's not wisdom. But if you start to ask, why is this so? You're starting down the path of wisdom. And she has to say, hmm, become self-conscious. Yeah, I believe that Adam was telling the truth. It was God who said it. And did God say you shall eat from any tree of the garden? From every tree? Literally. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree that is in the center of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it. God says it. See? She trusts Adam, which is good at this point. You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Uh Uh-oh, she was adding to the word of God. Or was she? Usually you hear that Eve was sinfully adding to the word of God. Maybe she was resenting the fact 
that that delicious red apple was off limits. And so then she says, well, we can't eat it and we can't even touch it. But let me tell you something. If you look over at Leviticus 11, the things you don't eat, you don't touch. Paul says, touch not, taste not, handle not. Those things go together. Eve is reasoning entirely properly here. They've talked it over and they said, we ought not to eat it. Probably we ought to keep our hands off of it. And you teenagers remember this. No sex, and that means no touching. All right. No eating, no touching. Touch not, taste not, handle not. It goes together. It goes together always in the Bible. So this is correct reasoning. We're starting down the wisdom path of starting with the law, the one rule that's been given, but now beginning to see its wider implications. The law says... Don't muzzle an ox when he treads out the corn. The wider implication is, pay your pastor at least $120,000 a year. Alright? That's what Paul says. That figure isn't in there, but I'm sure he would agree. So, this is wisdom. And the serpent is doing a great job. He's asking these challenging Socratic questions that are making her think. And she's starting to get wisdom. And Adam is standing right there, letting her have the conversation. And then, here it comes. Are you ready for it? The serpent said to the woman, you will not die. Now, that was a lie. There you are. That could be the very moment when Lucifer said, you know what? I'm not playing this game. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eye will be opened. Well, you know, that's true. We're going to see it in just a minute. And you will be like God. That's true. We'll see it in a minute. Knowing good and evil. That's true. All those things are going to happen. But the lie was, you will not die. Now at that point, Adam is supposed to say, hey, wait a minute, you don't mess with my wife. He should step in and interfere. He should continue to teach her. He should do his job as her pastor and her husband and teach her the truth and protect her. He's supposed to beautify and protect the garden. And she's in the garden, and she's the prettiest thing in the garden, and he's supposed to protect her, but he doesn't. We mentioned that this morning. He wanted her to taste it so he would see what would happen. So the woman saw the tree was good for food. Is that true? Was it good for food? Yes, sir, I'm afraid it was because it said every tree was good for food. <laughs> you know, you're on the right track in some ways, but we're going to have to be real literal here. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Was it a delight to the eyes? Yeah, it was. And it was desirable to make wise. Is that true? Yes, it is. It confers knowledge of good and evil. So, hey, look. It's tasty. It's pretty. And you get wisdom from it. So why shouldn't we have it? Because God says not to have it. He says you're not old enough to have it. You're not experienced enough to have it. You're not ready to have it. That's why you can't have it. But... She took from his fruit and ate. And when she didn't keel over, she gave it to her husband and he ate. Alright? Now, we see Adam's failure here, that he's a male chauvinist pig who sticks his wife out to take the risks while he stays back in security. There's lots of things we could preach about here, about how rotten men are. And you know, the New Testament tells us that the woman was tricked into doing this. Paul says, the woman was deceived. She was tricked. 
That's why we don't talk about the fall of the human race happening with the sin of Eve. The Bible distinguishes between self-conscious sins and sins of being led astray or sins of inadvertency. Eve's is the sin of inadvertency. Adam was supposed to lead her and guard her and protect her, and he didn't. So that mitigates her sin. She shouldn't have done it, but she was confused. Adam was not confused. Adam heard God's voice say, what was what? Adam doesn't come off very well in this story. You know, I've heard stuff like, well, Adam was out naming other animals, and he came home and he found that Eve had eaten the fruit, and because he loved her so much, he decided to join with her in her sin so that he would suffer along with her. That's not what happened. He was standing there the whole time. It says she took them the fruit and gave to her husband with her. And he ate. He was right there. Now, what happened? It says that your eyes were opened. Verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened. What, were their eyes closed before? No, obviously not. See, this means your eyes are open in a fuller sense. In what sense were their eyes opened? We just read Genesis 1, didn't we? God saw that it was good. God saw that it was very good. God saw that it was not good and said, let's make a woman. God sees and evaluates and judges. Their eyes were opened in that sense to become kings and queens to pass judgments. Hmm. That's the sense in which their eyes were opened when they ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what knowledge of good and evil is about. And they knew that they were naked. Well, that's not good. If you trace this through in the Bible, when you become a king, they give you a glorious robe. If Adam and Eve had been ready for the fruit, they wouldn't have been naked in the day they ate of it. They would have had a glorious garment just like God himself is robed in glory as king. But now, this is part of the problem. Well, what about Satan saying you will become like God? Well, that's what it says. Verse 22 of chapter 3, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. In some sense, that's true. They became more like God in that they were now judges and rulers and kings. Only they were not good kings. You see, look around the world. The fall of man didn't mean that people wouldn't become kings. It just meant that they'd become bad kings like Saddam Hussein, assuming he wasn't a good guy. Or Idi Amin, or these guys in India, see? They're bad kings, but they're still kings, and they're still exercising powers. The word Elohim, or God, means the power that be. They're rulers. And they have knowledge of good and evil. That is, they have the right to pass judgment even if they do it wrongly. And God puts garments of rule on them. Verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. But the word garment there is the word tunic. Ketonic in Hebrew. Same in Latin. In Hebrew, ketonic. In Latin, tunic. In English, tunic. It's a royal garment. It's a garment of authority. He gave them this garment of authority. Later on, there aren't any more tunics in the Bible until we get to Joseph and his tunic of many colors. That was a sign of his authority. Right? That's why the brothers tore that tunic off of him. Because they hated the fact that he had authority over them. 
Now, all of these things are happening, and then verse 23 and 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And then there's a verse missing. Adam said, No, I've changed my mind. I don't want to go out there into that wild world. And so in verse 24 says, So he drove the man out. He sent him out and then he drove him out, which indicates Adam may have had second thoughts about being sent out here. And God says, I'm not going to let you back in because now if you eat of the tree of life, you'll be sealed. Somehow or other, it appears that you'll be sealed in this sinfulness. Now, that's all the stuff we would have done this morning. In 15 minutes, we'll do what we would have done tonight. This is what knowledge of good and evil has to do with. It has to do with being king passing judgment, having your eyes open, being like the angel of the Lord as we saw this morning, and ruling in the kingly political realm. Now, let me show you the true Adam. In this case, it's Solomon. It's in 1 Kings chapter 3. Notice how this contrasts with what we just read. Solomon comes to the throne. He's probably maybe 20, 25 He's not all that old. And he does not think very much of himself. In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon prays to God and he says, And now, Yahweh my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. Now he's about 25. I do not know how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people that thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. Believe me, my daddy tried to number them and I'll never make that mistake. So give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people to discern between good and evil. Notice how that's all put together. To judge your people by discerning between good and evil. And Solomon asks for it. He doesn't seize it. He doesn't grab it off the tree. He doesn't say to his girlfriend, hey, why don't you have a bite of that and see what happens? No, he asked God for it. He says, I'm too young for it. I'm not ready for it. I don't have wisdom. Please, if I'm going to have to be king, rear back and pass a miracle and give me an understanding heart, wisdom, a heart of wisdom to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of thine? And so God says in verse 12, Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. So there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise afterwards. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge of good and evil to judge and pass judgment over the people. And so the very next thing that happens in verse 16 the two women who were harlots came to the king and he shows this tremendous wisdom and verse 28 says, When all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had handed down, they feared the king for they saw the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Now, if you look up in a Bible dictionary the word wisdom, it says, Wisdom is the skill to accomplish things. That's true in a sense, but... Wisdom in the Bible is the skill to be a king and rule people and pass judgment. Now, you and I are kings. My skill to discern and accomplish things 
is to use my knowledge of theology and Bible and grammar to deal with this text and to do other things. It's still skill and wisdom, but the model of skill and wisdom is this political thing, and it has to do with death. And this is what I want us to talk about for just a few minutes here. God had said in Genesis 2.17, In the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And now we saw this morning that they're eventually supposed to eat from it, and we see that kings are supposed to have knowledge of good and evil, but did Solomon die before he came to have knowledge of good and evil? In a sense, yes. Now, now this is where we got to go back to Genesis 2 again. We just can't seem to get out of this chapter. You will die. Now, we always hear it this way. Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, I'll kill you. You'll die. You'll be so sorry. You'll be so dead. Don't eat of it or you'll die. And then we were seeing this morning that they're supposed to eventually eat of it, so we were thinking, well, maybe God was going to rescind that threat. But there's another possibility, and that is that it's not a threat at all. That death is not a threat unless you're a sinner. That apart from sin, death isn't a threat, it's an opportunity. It's the first step of a transformation process. Now I want you to listen to Genesis 2 and maybe even look here. Well, before we do that, if I was going to teach for four hours, we'd go through the whole Bible and do this. But in the New Testament, when it talks about Christians dying, what does it say? It says they've fallen asleep, doesn't it? We talk about people falling asleep in the New Testament. They've fallen asleep in Jesus. When Jesus comes to the little dead girl, what does he say? Oh, she's not dead. She's just asleep. Well, she's dead, all right. But Jesus says she's asleep. And he wakes her up. He says, Tabitha, arise. All over the Old Testament, there's symbolic forms of death. All those uncleannesses are symbolic death. So death in the Bible does not necessarily mean terrible, cursed, horrible death experience. It can mean something like falling asleep. It can mean something like acquiring something that's taken away. So what sense does death have here? We could also ask this question. Would animals have died if Adam had never sinned? Sometimes people say, well, death entered the world because of Adam's sin, and so there would never have been any animals die if Adam hadn't sinned. Well, I hate to hurt your feelings here, but the world would have been six feet deep in bunny rabbits in about 20 years, if that was the case. You see? Animals would have fallen asleep and gotten out of the way to make for new animals. And possibly people as well. Do you think Adam and Eve would have just lived on and on until the earth was wall-to-wall people? Or would they have lain down one day and fallen asleep and gone someplace else to wait the new universe? That could well be. So let's not think that death before the fall was bad. And listen to what it says here. Verse 17 of chapter 2, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for it. From the day you eat of it you will surely die. And then... Yahweh God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, he formed all these animals and he brought them to the man. And the man did not find a helper suitable. And then verse 21 says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. 
Now, the word for sleep here is not the word for normal sleep. I'll prove it to you. So the Lord God caused Adam to fall fast asleep. He was really asleep. He was snoring up a storm. And then God ripped one of his ribs out of his side and closed up the flesh. You think he'd have woken up? If you were asleep and I pulled a rib out of your side, would you wake up? This is not sleep sleep. This is a completely different Hebrew word, tardama, radam, which means a place very close to death. You can look at a concordance. People who are just about to die are in tardama sleep. Call this death sleep. He was way down there, man. He didn't even wake up when God ripped out a rib. And then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib that he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, at last now, hey, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, you see, immediately after God says death, from eating the tree of knowledge, immediately Adam goes into a death situation. And what happens when he's in that death situation? He's torn in half. And then he is resurrected and he is glorified. He goes from not being glorified down into something real close to death where his body is changed. He loses a rib. And then he's resurrected and he's glorified. How do I know that Adam was glorified? I'm sure all you ladies can answer this. The woman is the what of the man? You got it. The woman is the glory of the man. This is glorification. It's the first step of glorification to have the woman next to Adam. It's a new form of the Adamic covenant. Now everything is very good, but... Even though everything is very good, Adam still doesn't have a ticket to come out into the land. There's got to be something else. We'll have another animal come, and he'll learn wisdom, and he will be ready to be given the robe of authority and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in that day, he will die. What does that mean? It means he'll fall into some kind of deep sleep. His body will be changed a little bit. He'll wake up, and he'll be glorified even more. He'll be a king. That's what it means in context. Now, because of sin, you and I don't experience death this way. Paul says the sting of death is what? Sin. The sting of death is sin. That's why death is horrible. That's why we're afraid of it. It's because sin is mixed in with it. Judgment is mixed in with it. But originally, it was not so. I want to go back to the question I asked earlier today. Why did God do it this way? Why didn't he say to Adam, now Adam, stand still, pull a rib out and make a woman. Why does Adam have to go down into this deep sleep and then come back up? What's the point of that? This is your opportunity to acquire wisdom. (laughs) Why does God do that? Seems like a lot of extra work to me. You ever thought about that? How many of you have ever asked yourselves that question? How many of you are asking yourselves, how come I never asked myself that question? Well, let's go back a chapter. How come there's an evening and a morning between each day? Why isn't there just a day, and then another day, and then another day? What's this getting dark and getting light again stuff? The wolf started out as dark, but then God made light. Why doesn't the light just continue? And we have a day, 
and a day and a day. Why does everything have to get dark again and then get light again? Why? Why does that happen? That's the way the world is, and then when he makes human beings, he makes us out of what? Dirt, right? So you're made out of the world, and so you go to sleep and wake up every day. Why is that? Just like the world gets dark and light, you go down and come up every day. And now we have a big form of this right here. He puts Adam way down and pulls him way up and glorifies him. Why? Why is it that way? I don't know. But that's how God does things, folks. That's how he does it. When he wants to transform things, he takes them down first and brings them back up. He makes the world dark, and then there's another day in which he does something new. He puts you to sleep, and you wake up the next day able to do stuff again with new energy. You know, when you go to sleep, you're real tired. You don't have any energy. Isn't it amazing? When you wake up, you got more energy. Or some of us do. What's happening there? It's a new day. You have new energy. That's what death and resurrection is like apart from sin. And that's what would have happened for Adam to become a king. Now, this business of experiencing death prepares people to be in charge of death. Remember when Solomon acquires wisdom and he gets knowledge of good and evil? What's the first thing? These two harlots come. What does he say? He says, get out a sword and cut the baby in half. Right? He is manipulating death. Now that is a godlike power. That's why you don't give it to babies. That's why you give it to elders. Elders are supposed to rule and make those decisions because they have a lifetime of experience and wisdom. But that capital punishment, the ability to understand what things need to be killed and what things left alive, that is the heart of this wisdom and knowledge of good and evil. It's political and it's out here. It has to do with all kinds of things, how you deal with animals, how you deal with plants. But in the political realm, in a world under sin, it has to do with dealing with death. A person who has experienced this hard time of death is now in a position of dealing with it. Well, I hope that I have started you thinking about wisdom. That wisdom is for the area out here, outside the church. Of course, wisdom functions in the church as well. The pastoral life outside the liturgy, the rest of the week, the elders and pastors have to have wisdom in dealing with people. But in the Bible, it's largely political in character, and it has to do with life and death, and we're to that point in our consideration. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.